Welcome to the Serial Audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of Book One in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. Four. The red-haired girl squints tightly, making the bridge of her nose wrinkle. So much hair, still draped over her face as if it can shield her from our strange reality. She's trying hard to make her watering eyes adjust. She trembles in my arms, terrified and confused. We're safe, I say, trying to comfort her. We're alone here. Take it easy. She nods, holds me tighter but I feel her relax a little. Her hand seeks out mine, and we lock fingers. I look at our clasped hands. Our skin is not the same. Hers is pale, a pinkish tan. Mine is much darker. Mine is brown. Our hands are about the same size. That strikes me as strange. She looks older than I do, almost old enough to leave school. Girls that age are usually so much taller. School. These clothes. Did we wear things like this in school? I can't remember. I have a vague image of a few girls looking beautiful and perfect, while I looked ugly and stupid, even though we all wore the exact same thing. Her short plaid skirt shows almost all of her legs. They are long and shapely, not the knobby-kneed twigs of an awkward girl. Maybe someday I will have legs like hers. The sleeves of her white shirt end just past her elbows. At her chest, the top two buttons are missing, showing the curve of her breasts. She's probably embarrassed by that. I'm embarrassed for her. It makes me uncomfortable. We lie there, unmoving, dust motes swirling in the air. Her hair is so long. I reach to my own head, feel that my hair is tied back in a heavy braid. I pull it around and look at it. It's black and thick. The braid hangs down to my waist. It feels so silky, like it was recently brushed. Someone put me in a coffin and fixed my hair? A shiver slides across my skin. Maybe it's okay. Maybe mom brushed it, or dad. But if it was them, did they do that right before they sealed me in and left me to die? The red-haired girl finally opens her eyes a little, Blinking slits that show me their color, a deep green. She blinks away tears. She sniffs, wipes at her nose. You saved me, she says. You set me free. Thank you, Em. She sits up. She brushes her thick hair behind her left ear, then her right. When she does, I see something on her forehead, a black circle as wide as the distance between her eyes, made of a material that clearly isn't her, and yet is also a part of her at the same time. The dark color stands in stark contrast against her white-pink skin. The outside of the circle is smooth. The inside is kind of jagged, with stubby points sticking inward. Eight of them, evenly spaced apart. Stubby points, kind of like, like teeth. She's a tooth girl. 
I feel a surge of emotions. Tooth girls. They made fun of me in school, didn't they? I can't remember my school, and I can't remember why the tooth girls ridiculed me. Only how their words and glares and jokes made me feel. Small, unimportant, worthless. I hate her. No, I don't even know this girl. At least I don't think I do. We're in this together. I will not hate her because of some decoration on her skin. Wait, do I have one? My free hand flies to my forehead. I feel something embedded there. A circle like hers, but smooth, both inside and out. There are no stubby points, no teeth. Our fingers remain locked. Her skin is warm, the only warm thing in this cold room. I'm afraid, she says. Em, what is this place? I don't know. My fingertips lightly trace the shape that marks her skin. She sees me doing that, reaches to her forehead. Her eyes widen with discovery. I have one too, she says. Yours is a plain circle, but mine feels different on the inside. Bumps or something. What are they? Teeth, I want to say. Because you're a tooth girl. But I don't say that. I like her and she seems to like me. I don't want her to know that word in case it makes her remember something and not like me anymore. They look like stubby bits, I say. She waits for me to keep going, but I don't know any other way to describe what I see. She thinks for a moment, she shrugs. We both have symbols, I don't know what they mean. Neither do I. She looks around the room, taking it all in. This isn't the birthday I was hoping for, she says. It's your birthday too? She looks at me doubtful, like I'm playing some kind of trick on her. Yes, she says, I'm 12. She's the one who was playing tricks. My instincts were right. The tooth girl, whatever that is, already making fun of me. I lean away from her. I'm not dumb, you know, I say. She blinks confused. I, of course you're not, I didn't say you were. She blushes and looks away, like she knows she said something wrong but doesn't know what that something was. Em, I would never be rude to my elders like that. Elders, what is she talking about? You're not 12, I say. I point at her legs, her breasts. Look at you. You think I'd be so stupid that I believe you're the same age as me? Her expression of embarrassed confusion changes to one of total disbelief. She holds out her arms, looks at them, then down at herself. I don't understand, she says. She pulls at the bottom of her shirt, but the material doesn't stretch. Her belly, flat, pale, is exposed. This too makes me uncomfortable. My belly is cold. I look down at my blood-speckled shirt and realize, for the first time, that it's too small for me. The bottom of it leaves my stomach open to the cold air. My sleeves end halfway up my forearms. No wonder it feels freezing in here. I'm half naked. I touch my belly, suddenly self-conscious. This seems wrong, like showing bare skin is a bad thing. The shirt is too tight against my breasts. 
Or are my breasts too big for my shirt? I feel them. They weren't the size before. Were they? No, they weren't. I'm sure of it. I can't remember anything, but I know my body has changed. The red-haired girl stares at me intensely. I realize I'm touching myself right in front of her. I look away, put my hands in my lap. She feels her own chest. Her eyes widen with surprise. What happened? They weren't like this before. I shake my head. Same with me. So, you say you're 12, she says. You look 19, maybe 20. You look like a grown woman. So do you. She nods slightly. She looks off, glancing at nothing in particular. Her lips twitch, like she's saying half words that I can't hear. It doesn't make sense, she says finally. We need more information. Until then, we have to believe what our eyes show us. She again cups her breasts. She isn't ashamed at all. She's measuring, thinking. The corners of her mouth curve up in a small grin. I can't recall what I asked for, but I'm pretty sure I wasn't expecting these as a present, she says. Maybe it's a good birthday after all. I mean, other than being locked up in the dark. Her fascination and delight with her body's unexpected change hasn't completely taken the fear out of her eyes. She reaches up, touches one of the carvings on her coffin lid. A jaguar, I think it is. One eye smashed and splintered from where I hit it. Some of these images seem familiar, she says. I can't place them, but, well, they're familiar. My coffin has them too. The red-haired girl wrinkles her nose, shakes her head. Coffins are for dead people, Em. We're clearly not dead. She stares at my forehead, her eyes narrow. She's trying to work something out. Then she looks away. Does she remember what my circle means? If so, she doesn't share. She points to the jewel-encrusted rod lying on the ground beside me. I think I know what that is, she says. I pick it up and wipe dust off the metal. I move it closer to her so she can see it better. Maybe you used a weapon like this before? For the first time, the red-haired girl smiles wide. It lights up her whole face. She looks amazing. Her eyes gleam with delight. I'm not sure it's possible for a person to be more beautiful than she is right now. It's not a weapon, she says. I think it's a tool. A tool? That never crossed my mind. She starts to nod, like she's sure she's right, then stops. Her smile fades. She's not sure. She isn't sure about anything. Em, do you know my name? No. Let's find out what it is. I stand, take her hand and help her up. She seemed so tall at first, but I'm only a tiny bit shorter than she is. I lead her to the front of her coffin. Just like with mine, there is a flat area surrounded by dust-covered jewels. I brush it clean. Blue jewels frame the engraved letters, T. Spingate. That's you, I say. I think. Your name is Spingate. Does that make you remember anything? She frowns. Her lower lip quivers. Her eyes water. And this time... It's not from the light, 
Her eyelashes are long and dark. I suddenly have a desperate urge to find a mirror. Do I have green eyes like hers? Spingate shakes her head. I can't remember anything. I remember my mom, sort of, but I can't remember her face. As soon as she says that, I realize I have no idea what my parents actually look like. Mom and dad, they're blank spaces. I know the concept of my parents. I know they loved me and I loved them. But their faces, their names, nothing. Spingate sniffs, wipes away tears. She nods slowly, as if accepting things for what they are. She studies our surroundings, taking in the walls, the ceiling, the door arch. Em, do you know what's outside this room? No idea. She looks at the coffin across the aisle, where I found the weapon. That lid isn't shut all the way. Was that one yours? I point to my right, to the last coffin in our row. I see my path of footsteps through the dust. I was in that one, I say. Spingate stares down the aisle for a few moments. Her mouth moves a little again. When she does that, it's like she doesn't even know I'm there. She looks me up and down. How did you get all bloody? Other than smears of dust, her shirt is clean and white. There was a tube in my coffin, I say. It stabbed me with a needle. That's what woke me up. Her expression darkens. Maybe she realizes that if I hadn't broken out of my coffin, she would still be in hers. Em, how did you get out? There's no one else here. I shrug. I got myself out. She gives me a strange look, as if the concept is unthinkable. Spingate's hands reach to her shoulders, rub slowly up and down like she's hugging herself against the chill. She walks across the aisle, wobbling a bit, but standing on her own, then kneels at the foot of the coffin with the slightly open lid. She brushes off the nameplate. It says, B. Brewer. The stones are purple. Maybe we can use the tool to open it and see if someone is inside? We've been sitting here talking, and I never thought that there might be others trapped like Spingate was, like I was. All these coffins. Maybe one of them holds a person who knows what this place is and how we got here. I walk across the aisle and jam the heavy bar's forked end into the small crack, the lid closest to me under the bar, the forked end under the lid farthest away. I push down. The lid doesn't budge. I rise to my toes, pull all my weight on the bar. Em, I can help with, I've got it, I say, my effort turning the words into grunts. I hear a slow creaking coming from the lid. I rise up a little more, then push down as hard as I can, all at once. There was a loud bang from the coffin as something gives way. The lid halves suddenly tilt up, hum as they slide to the sides. Sheets of gray spill off their smooth, carved surfaces. We look inside. A wave of fear pushes my body a step backward. Spingate reacts differently. Instead of stepping away, she leans forward. Maybe you were right, she says. If that's B. Brewer, I guess in his case, it really is a coffin. Five. B. Brewer is a dead little boy.
A thin line of dust runs up his tiny shriveled body, dust that fell through the crack between the lids. The coffin is the same size as mine and Spingate's, but it looks huge surrounding such a small corpse. The skin of his face is dried so tightly to his skull that it's cracked in some places, showing the bone beneath. His eyes are empty sockets. His lips have shrunken back, showing two rows of discolored teeth. It looks like he's smiling. I feel sick to my stomach. Brewer is wearing a white shirt and an embroidered red tie, black pants and a black belt instead of a plaid skirt. Even if he wasn't all dried up, the outfit would have been too big and too long for his little body. Pitted, crimson-spotted bars hold down his hips, ankles, and hands, even though his feet and wrists are hidden inside his pants and sleeves. Spingate points to his tiny forehead, to a symbol, just as black as ours, embedded in his dried skin. It is a circle with one line down the middle and one running from side to side. A cross, she says, or a T, she shrugs. Maybe a plus sign? Maybe. A tooth girl, a circle girl, a cross boy. And we have no idea what any of it means. I'm staring at a corpse. That could have been me. These are coffins after all. So why is he dead while I am alive? Looking at him makes me cold in a different way than the temperature and my scant excuse for clothing. I'd be so much warmer with pants. Did he get to wear pants because he's a boy? If so, that's not fair. Spingate slowly extends a finger toward Brewer. She pokes his cheek. Dried flesh crumbles and falls away. It's awful, but it doesn't seem to bother Spingate at all. She grabs the sleeve of his shirt, starts to tug. My hand locks on her forearm. Stop that, I say. What are you doing? Making a bandage. For what? She points to my wrists. You're still bleeding. I look at them and see she's right. The bars rubbed my skin raw. Small spots of red well up from a dozen tiny tears. Dust packs the wounds, making the blood more sludge than liquid. But it's still slowly oozing out. I'm fine, I say. We shouldn't disturb the dead. Spingate huffs. The dead don't care. She tears two long strips from his shirt, jerking his tiny body in the process. A thick, dry piece of his face falls away, exposing the cheekbone below. Spingate wraps the strips around my wrists and ties them off. That's better, she says. Should we open the other coffins? Nine remained closed. Spingate and I wasted time sitting with each other, a little more staring at Brewer. Yes, I say, and quickly. She holds out her hand toward my weapon. Can I try? That strikes me as funny. She wasn't strong enough to get out of her own coffin, but she thinks she's strong enough to break one open from the outside. I hand her the jeweled rod. Spingate takes it, and when she does, that soul-melting smile peeks out again. She's excited, moving quickly, her fear suddenly forgotten. She moves to the next coffin and brushes dust off the nameplate. The jewels sparkle bright yellow. K O'Malley, she says. Spingate's fingers trace the yellow jewels. She puts a fingertip on one and pushes. 
It slides inward until it clicks. When she pulls her finger away, the jewel stays depressed. She pushes it again and it clicks again, then returns to its original height. She moves to the next one, pinches it between finger and thumb and twists. The jewel rotates in place. Somewhere inside the coffin, we hear a series of small whirs and clinks. Spingate doesn't know what she's doing, but she's trying things, pressing, then listening, turning, then listening some more. Her lips move a little, making no sound. She points at the jewels, her finger bouncing in the air. She's counting. She lifts the weapon, touches a pattern of jewels on its shaft, then presses a similar pattern on the jewels surrounding the name K. O'Malley. A hidden panel on the side of the coffin slides up fast, revealing the negative space of two small circles. Spingate laughs, delighted at her success. She stands, then slides the rod's prongs into the circles. They fit perfectly. I hear a click. She lifts the end of the rod. A deep thrum comes from inside the coffin. The lid halves shudder. Dust powders down from them as they slide neatly to the sides. Inside, lying motionless, eyes closed, is a boy, a sleeping boy, dressed like Brewer, but as big as we are, bigger even. His shoulders press against the coffin's white fabric. The toes of his black-socked feet touch the end. He has thick brown hair. His skin is darker than Spingate's, but not as dark as mine. He is beautiful. The symbol on his forehead is a circle like mine, but the right half is solid black. His clean white shirt is far too small for his smooth chest. Some of the buttons are missing. There is no dust on him, none at all. No blood either. The bars holding his waist, wrists and ankles seem far too tight. I stare at him. I can't help it. I feel strange. My insides shiver. He's breathing, Spingate says, her words a hushed breath. He's alive. I need this boy to wake up. I need him to see me. Give me the weapon. I mean the tool. I'll break his bars. Just a moment, she says. We might not have to break anything. The tool is still firmly locked in the coffin's side, sticking up at an angle. She looks at it, then at O'Malley, then at the tool again. She presses a pair of jewels on the handle. Nothing happens. She thinks, presses a different pair. Then the bars across O'Malley's wrists, ankles, and waist split in the middle and snap down vanishing inside the coffin's padded lining. Other than the gentle rise and fall of his chest, he doesn't move. I feel a rush of panic that Spingate will wake him. I need to be the one who does it. Go open the other coffins, I tell her. She looks at me. She seems confused. She looks at O'Malley again. Spingate, hurry up about it, I say. We don't know how much time we have. She sighs. She likes looking at him, too and it's hard for her to look away. She does, though. She pulls the tool free and walks to the next coffin. I stare down at O'Malley. His hair looks so soft. His mouth is slightly open, his full lips moving with each breath. When Spingate smiled for the first time, I thought she was the most beautiful thing that could ever be. I was wrong. I hear Spingate brush dust away from a metal plate. 
This one is, oh, I'm not sure, she says. I think it's Aramovsky. Something about that grabs my attention. What are the last few letters? It ends with an S, a K, and a Y, she says. My breath catches, because I remember something. A name, a name of a, oh, what is it? It's right there tickling my thoughts. Of a musician, yes, a musician with a name that ended in an S, a K, and a Y. Tchaikovsky. It's not sky, I say. It's ski. I go back to staring at O'Malley. Aramovsky, Spingate says. Can I open it? Why does she keep asking for my permission? Sure, go ahead. I hear her working at something. I reach out a finger, gently touch O'Malley's ribs. He's warm. The contact sends a prickling sensation across my skin. I don't feel cold anymore. He doesn't respond. What should I do? What if he doesn't wake up at all? I hear that thrum again, hear Spingate laugh as Aramovsky's coffin opens. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler. S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.